This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. This is a very special episode because we're going to be hearing about the 2020 data set. My name is John Dunn, and each year, this massive data collection effort gives us the best understanding of life-saving progress across the country. How many animals in and how many animals out? We get a national number, but we can also see what is happening in every community in America. Seriously. Now, it wasn't that long ago when we didn't know this kind of information. Yes, we had data, but it wasn't always accurate, and it certainly was not compiled in the comprehensive way that it is today. So that's what the data set is all about. It's an annual, accurate accounting of the work we're doing. Now, there's a lot to this, and if you're a regular listener of the podcast, then you know I always try to make sure we don't get too granular on numbers. This is an audio podcast, and rattling off data points would be weird and boring. So if you go to our website, bestfriends.org podcast, We'll have links where you can find all of this information, and along with the publication of the annual data set, this year we've launched a new version of the Pet Lifesaving Dashboard. This is where you can see for yourself what is happening where you live, all the way down to your community. In the next episode, we'll be diving into the dashboard in detail, what it is, how it works, what you can use it for, so you won't want to miss that. But for today, it's about the high level of this annual data set how we collect it and come to the numbers that we do. And of course, we're going to talk about where everything stands. Is no kill by the year 2025 on track? To sift through the data and to help us understand so many important pieces to this, such as COVID's impact, I chatted with the Director of Business Intelligence and Strategy for Best Friends, Vicki Kilmer. Vicki, we have a lot to cover, uh, but I think it makes the most sense to first talk about the data set, how we collect it, what we're collecting, you know, how do we know what we know? And maybe most importantly, how do we know it's accurate? So help me understand that part of it. You bet. So um, this was actually our sixth year going through an, a data collection effort, which has certainly improved over time, as well as the number of shelters growing that we've been able to get data from. So those sources right now include our Shelter Animals Count Coalition. So um, everyone that opts into one of our coalitions, we have the benefit of their data. The other big source is our network partners who may provide data through other means. We also get a lot of our data through Freedom of Information Act requests and a large chunk of data through mandated state reporting. So those are really the largest data sources we additionally do get some of the data, a much lower percentage, through public websites and just shelters posting their data on their own website. Um, so we have a volunteer force that goes through and tries to pull that for any of the shelters by which we don't get through those other means that I just referenced. To be able to get all of that data, I mean, Vicki, that's a lot. And I think a skeptic might say it's nonsense. It's impossible to know. How could you collect all of this data from across the entire country in a timely, organized way, pull it together each year like this, make it available to the public? You know, I mean, we know for a fact 
there are still a lot of communities that have no interest in sharing their data. Yeah. And I, I would say one of the big game changers for us was a few years back, and I have to credit Abby Crow for this, leading a volunteer effort to really develop a master shelter list because one of our big data gaps in the industry forever has been that nobody even knew how many shelters were out there. So as much data as you get, if you don't know how much that represents, then you're still kind of sitting there not knowing how complete it is. So several years ago, we did go through that effort, which we um, maintain ongoingly of a master shelter list. So we collect all of the data that we can, which this year was 3,330 shelters, but then we still have the ability to know what we're missing. And unfortunately, we're still missing 24% of shelters, around 1,000. And so we do also employ an estimation methodology, which is on a regional and per capita basis to take our known or collected data in that region on a per population level and um, predict the shelter data that we do not have on a region by region basis and normalized for population. So that is in essence how we do our estimations, which over time, you know, have luckily been reduced in terms of the number of shelters that we're having to estimate for. And they do tend to be smaller shelters, we believe that affords us, um, even in the 24% that we're estimating, we're probably only estimating about 7% of total sheltered animals that are running through the system nationwide. So that's kind of where we're at today and the process we use to get there. So I'm going to delay the big news about the 2020 data and where all the life-saving progress stands, because I think the background is important and I want people to get an understanding of the process behind it. Like folks, you know, we're not just pulling numbers from a hat. So one thing I think historically that has tripped up the industry around data collection, data reporting, and the standards is definitions. You know, other efforts to do this in the past, it was a lot of room for interpretation. So, you know, how many adoptable animals did we save? Well, what is adoptable? You know, what I think is adoptable is going to be different to your definition. And Susie's definition is totally different to ours. Have we been able to clean that up, kind of get everybody on the same page a cat in and a cat out and a dog in and a dog out. Do you know what I mean? Are we better with this? A lot further ahead than we have been in the past and yet still not, of course, where we would like to be. So we use, as I think has been become pretty much the norm across the industry, the shelter animals count um, basic data matrix, which I should actually call it the National Federation of Humane Society's basic data matrix because that's where it was born and then um, adopted by Shelter Animals Count and, and further adopted by Best Friends as well. So that is very specific about data fields and definitions. Um, and that is what we use for our data collection. What's interesting though, is that that template or that reporting guide does break down into further categories that not every shelter reports by, for example, juvenile versus adult. Um, that tends to be an area where we get a lot of like age unknown reporting and then mandated state reporting. Each state does it differently. So um, a lot of the kind of normalizing of data on the back end is we get data in different forms and with different levels of granularity. Um, we need to normalize all of that so that it is apples to apples. One of the things we sometimes 
sacrifice in granularity is species specificity, for example. So we may get intakes and outcomes, but it's just all lumped together and we have to accommodate for calling it undesignated because we don't know if it's canine or feline. So it's still, it's not totally there. It's like a um, journey, not a destination, I guess, but it's definitely so much better because of the basic data matrix and the high level of adoption throughout the industry, it's a lot more consistent than it used to be. So in the news business, I think they would say that I buried the lead, <laughs> which is the 2020 data, the numbers, where do we stand? Yeah, if they made it if they made it through methodology and data fields, now we get to get to the fun stuff. Right, exactly. So if you're still with us, thank you. Uh, here we go. Uh, so what happened in 2020? 17 million animals killed in shelters in the mid 80s. Last year, sorry, 2019, 625,000 animals, uh, healthier treatable animals killed in shelters. I think that's right. That is absolutely correct. Good job, John. And shockingly positive reduction this year. I think we all knew the COVID year, especially as we were tracking it throughout the year, we were looking at massive intake reductions, massive euthanasia reductions. So just a really interesting year. And so we definitely were expecting our um, number of dogs and cats killed to come in much lower. But I think it certainly, I, I was doing forecasts all year and I can tell you that it was lower than my lowest forecast. So 347 is where we ended up, 347,000 to last year's 625. So that's nationwide, healthy or treatable animals, 347,000. Correct. And that represents both our collected data from those 3,330 brick and mortar shelters. I should have emphasized that this, this is shelter data only. And um, also the estimations for the missing shelters. I mean, wow, what a number. I mean, the, the progress, Vicki, you know, you and I have been doing this for a while now. And I got to tell you, every year, the reduction and seeing it come down the way that it has. And last year, seeing that number under a million, like that was special. But I feel like there's, I don't know, 347,000, like it, there's just something the way it hits me, mind blowing to be where we are in 2021. It really is. And, I, and you know, the big question on everyone's mind is, wow, that's amazing. And it feels, that number just like feels different, right? But the big question is how much of that was driven by the changes last year and how much of those changes will stick? So that's the big discussion going on ever since we got the new data set out and um, began sharing it. So my team has actually spent a lot of time trying to pull that apart. We do know that a great deal of what we saw was what we're calling the COVID effect. But what was really interesting is that when we looked at the intake to death ratio by month from our monthly data, and we were able to see, you know, when you look at it by month, it's the, the COVID year becomes really, really even more interesting. And you could see like when everything like plummeted and then you could see when it started to climb back up, um, climb slowly back up. And what was really interesting is that when intake did start going back up, the um, intake to death ratio did not follow. So deaths were still staying significantly further below intake levels, even when intake started to reverse itself and start going back up. And what was even more interesting to me in that analysis is that that differential and differential in a good way. So intakes going back up, but deaths staying low was even more pronounced 
for shelters where we were directly working in programming than it was for the pop, you know, the shelters overall. Okay. Uh, well, I started to get lost there a bit. Yeah, a lot there to digest. I failed college algebra twice, so you got to keep it simple for me. <laughs> I caught that part about the intake, intake death ratio. Maybe today isn't the day to be thinking about this, but are we here right now kind of celebrating what may well turn out to be an aberration? You know, in your opinion, what you know, as you look at the 2020 data, do you think this holds up when you and I are talking about this again a year from now? Yeah. So based on what we saw happening in the later months as the later months of the 2020 year, and as I stated, like intake beginning to go back up, but death still staying really low, it gave us a little bit of optimism in the absence, obviously, of a crystal ball. It gave us a little optimism that we do expect that we're not going to maintain 2020 levels, but we also do not anticipate that we will be reverting back to pre-pandemic levels of say a 2019. But what we have now that we didn't have the benefit of then is what's been happening so far. Because when we say next year, we actually really mean this year. Um, so what are we seeing in 2021? And it's actually been surprising to me because I thought in our forecast models, this is, are the assumptions that we fed in, was that we would be kind of falling somewhere kind of in the middle of a 2020 level versus pre-pandemic 2019. And what we're actually seeing so far is we're trending closer to 2020 than we are to pre-pandemic. So an easier, simpler way to say it is so far through May, it's holding closer to COVID levels than to returning to pre-pandemic levels. Now, one major caveat that I have to state is that we're seeing a very divergent path for dogs versus cats. So while overall, what I just said is true, cats are actually bouncing back to prior rates um, much more closely than our dogs. So that's going to be a really important thing to watch. Um, and in fact, when Steve Zeidman and I were filming our um, virtual conference presentation, you know, he made a really great point that we're we're at a point with the data we're seeing now where as an industry, we need to stop talking about cats and dogs and start talking about cats and dogs separately because they're trending in this kind of what is the new normal is looking very different from each other. Let's get a little deeper into the numbers. Geography, a big way we look at this data, you know, if we know where the needs are most pressing, then we can start to make more informed decisions about where we need to put resources, right? So regions, states, down to communities. So let's start at the state level. The 2019 data, the states with the highest number of animals killed, California, Texas, Oh, we're doing a test of John's memory here. I love it. Oh, man. Georgia was one in 2018, but I think they improved a lot and fell out. I, I should know this by heart. Uh, yikes. I'm going to blame fatigue. North Carolina. Yep. So embarrassing. I, there's another Southern You're, state, but... Where do, where do I live? Florida. Yeah. So, yeah. So, in order um, last year, it was California, Texas... North Carolina, Florida. So you nailed them and in order with a little help on Florida. And then Louisiana. 
So last year, Louisiana was the new among the top five states. And let me just, before I get into how that changed to this year for your podcast listeners, um, when we talk about the top blank states, it's not just a random number. What it, what it represents is that when we did the very first um, data collection effort back in 2016, I think one of the most shocking things that came out of that for our organizational understanding and knowledge was how concentrated the um, the life-saving gap was. And we're like, wow, look at the tiny handful of states that represent over 50% of what we're solving for across the whole country. And so when we talk about the top or the priority states, it's really that 50% um, threshold. And for the last few years, that's been five states. And I just talked about um, what those states were last year. This year, it's actually six states. The new entrant is Alabama. And we did have a little bit of swapping. So California and Texas had dramatic, almost doesn't even like capture it. I need a like dramatic plus, plus, plus word, life-saving improvement. Like California, 61% life-saving improvement in a single year. Crazy. And I think Texas was for 46, over 46% single year life-saving improvement huge numbers. But because California's was so incredibly dramatic, Texas actually has moved back in the number one spot. So California and Texas are doing like a little one and two dance over the last three years. So now Texas is back in number one. California is second. North Carolina remains number three. Florida remains number four. And then, um, or, sorry, Alabama not only is new on the list, but they are in the fifth position. And Louisiana, which had some pretty darn impressive life-saving improvement last year too, over 50%, moves down to the number six spot. So that's the new lineup for the priority states and some of the shifts that occurred there. But all in all, like tremendous life-saving improvement, which is what we would expect to see. That's where we've been focusing our work the whole past year. So just amazing progress in those priority states that um, we've been really focusing on and, and investing resources in. One note on Florida that I think is pretty interesting is um, of all the priority states, Florida has the highest and higher than the nation at large um, percentage of no-kill shelters. So Florida is really reaching out there and being pretty aggressive in the percentage of total shelters that we're seeing crossing that on 90% threshold. Well, I mean, Florida, what a great example where you've got amazing communities, organizations, Jacksonville Humane Society, I'll call out specifically Denise Deisler. Incredible, not just in the community, but the, they've gone beyond that. They've got this leadership role they're playing in the region. And then we have other communities in Florida, Miami-Dade. I mean, think about how far they've come. Tampa, Hillsboro, Scott Trebitoski, so many others. But then we can see the areas in Florida that do need help. The Panhandle, for example, Pensacola, Scambia County. Next door, you have Santa Rosa County, areas where, thanks to this data, We've been able to identify these places, figure out where they are, and we can forge relationships with the folks there. Amazing leaders who are now connected, right? We're able to offer them things like training. Tawny Hammond, my boss, one of the producers of the podcast, would be, uh, I think, very upset with me if I didn't plug all the amazing academic opportunities we now uh, have on offer at Best Friends. That's a way we can support those communities now, training the leadership 
uh, again, for, for life-saving today, but also into the future. I mean, that's something we have to think about. And I should also mention, we talked about the work happening in the Panhandle on the podcast, episode 14, I think. Anyway, this data isn't just like, oh, cool, look at all of these numbers. Awesome. See you next year. No, I mean, we take this, we use that knowledge that we now have, and we put the resources in communities that both need the help. And then of course they have to be receptive to the help, but then we're able to show here's where we were. And then here's where we are now. Informed work is successful work. And I love you tying the data directly back to that because it's kind of like a, okay, what's all this for? Um, Sure, we want to see our progress as a nation. We need to measure our goal, but that's a, a very nice byproduct. This is really to inform, you know, more than two cats are being killed for every one dog. That's cats are a big priority. What states are a big priority? Where do we need to go? Where do we need to allocate our resources? So it's really... Um, it really is about guiding that work and that focus. Like you said, the life-saving progress follows. To continue with geography, we've talked about areas that still need some help, but I think you've got exciting news about one state in particular, which is now the second no-kill state. Yeah, so big news. Celebration to New Hampshire for joining the ranks of Delaware formerly our sole no-kill state, and um, now New Hampshire. So that was thrilling. And I was personally rooting for Rhode Island and Vermont to make it over the threshold. And they were so, so close. So as much as I'm sure we're going to be talking about New Hampshire in the days ahead, I have to also talk about Rhode Island and Vermont because I'm quite confident we'll be talking about them joining the ranks as well, hopefully next year. They're They're super, super close. So there's this thing that I see and I hear a lot, uh, still far too much. And it's almost that we want to find reasons why we'll never be them. That what we're facing is unique, right? So New Hampshire, compared to where I live, it's a small state. It's cold. Uh, You know, they don't have the kitten season we have. They have more money than we do. Uh, How much can the data tell us about that? You know, either we are a lot more similar than we might think, or are there differences that, you know, good for them, but we've got some different struggles? You know, it's a great question, and I'm going to answer it a little differently than you're asking it. I think there's actually something to be learned, not only from where we can go, yeah, we achieved it, but where we haven't yet achieved no kill, but have made gigantic progress. I mean, not to minimize at all Delaware or New Hampshire, but they had a much lesser life-saving gap to close than a California or a Texas or a Florida. So I just, I think there's learnings, different learnings to be had in, in looking at all of that. I mean, community collaboration, that, that's a biggie. We do look every year, stepping back a little from states, we do look at no-kill shelters and no-kill communities. And every year, as we continue to see them grow, we, we look at Okay, who do we have now? How do they differ than non-no-kill communities? Are these more affluent communities? Are there differences in terms of size? We look at all of these different dimensions and we always we always come out the other side, including this year, saying any shelter can be a no-kill shelter and any shelter can be a no-kill community. I mean, the demographics just run the gamut. So great diversity within the shelters that have 
made that achievement as well as the communities that have. So that's a great thing to see. And I think that, you know, gives promise and encouragement, hopefully, to every other shelter out there and every other community out there that's on their way. Since we're in that area, let's shift to the growth of no-kill. Certainly, as we look towards the no-kill 2025 goal, a criticism of no-kill that never seems to go away is that, A, it's not possible. Obviously, that's ridiculous. And even if it happens, you can't sustain it. You know, that particular measure, I think, is really important. Yeah. So our no-kill, our percentage of no-kill shelters, so again, of total shelters that are on that master shelter list, whether we have their data or not, the shelters that we have data on that are over that 90% threshold now comprise 48%, so almost over that half tipping point um, of all shelters in the country. That was up for percentage points from last year. So we're continuing to see no-kill shelters grow. No-kill communities, we're now at a third. So a third of all counties in the country that have sheltering services are now no-kill. And um, that was up five percentage points over last year. So we're continuing to see growth happen. And we actually saw sustainability increase over the last year. When we looked at this for our 2019 data set, we were really, it was the first time we had looked at it and we were really pleased to see that 91% of shelters that attain no-kill retain no-kill status in the subsequent year. Um, And this was was looking over multiple years of data. And that is now up to over 93%. So it actually increased somewhat in our 2020 data set. So that was great to see. An interesting side note there is for the minority of shelters that do lose, you know, lose some ground and fall below that 90% mark, over 51% of them regain no-kill the subsequent year. So really, really high sustainability and um, also high bounce back. All right, everybody, you heard it. (laughs) Can we please stop debating whether or not a 90% save rate is achievable? Uh, You know, thankfully, I think we see this less and less. But if you do see people online or wherever talking about no kill and that it isn't possible, please send them to the Best Friends website because we have this information available. Again, links on the podcast website bestfriends.org slash podcast. Go to the latest episode, episode 69. So let's move to species. Cats, dogs, we know from the 2019 data and before how stark the difference is with cats versus dogs. Cats are still dying disproportionately versus dogs, two to one, uh, again, in that 2019 data. Has that changed at all? If you're looking at um, species save rates, we've had improvement both in dogs and in cats. What's interesting in in the cat and dog conversation are are two things. One, and this was true last in 2019 as well as in 2020, despite dog intake being higher, more than two cats are still unnecessarily dying to every one dog. So cats definitely continue to be a priority, even though their save rate, I will tell you, I mean, their save rate improved last year. Save rate, I mean, last year, all like, all, how did, how does that go? Raise all ships, all ships raised, however that phrase. Ra- rising tides, ra- raise all, I don't know, I think. No. No, that's not right. Raising tides. See, this is why I edit, Vicky, because I'm going to go look that up and I'll splice in the correct aphorism. Uh, it'll sound super smart. I never get a saying right. Like it's it's a thing with me. It goes along with my very poor sense of direction. So yeah, I mean, save rates for cats did improve last year. 
terrific. Save rates for dogs have been on the rise. Um, that continued last year. So that's all great. But when you look ratio wise, cats are still, you know, the majority of where the life-saving is needed. Now, what's really fascinating is that as we've been watching the 2021 data, so what's been going on January through May, I think I referenced earlier that cats are bouncing back to pre closer to pre-pandemic levels um, to a much greater degree than our dogs. And so what's, what that's creating in the overall sheltering population is that now cats are making up a greater share of the shelter population than our dogs. And that is a big shift from what we had seen. So not only are cats a real priority, and when we look at, you know, life-saving gap and where we're trying to focus screams cats, what is that going to mean now if this trend continues where the shelter population is actually becoming increasingly cats, where in the past it has been more dogs than cats? So just a couple trends we're seeing as we're watching this you know, what is this new normal we're returning to? Um, that's the the mix of the shelter population is definitely changing and starting to shift. I wasn't thinking we get too deeply into this, but I, I think it's important for us to understand. So last week on the podcast, we talked to Gateway Pet Guardians, Brittany Fleming, about a foster program they've developed for large dogs, those with behavioral challenges, behavior dogs. It's a huge need for us to solve for everywhere. How well do we know some of those more granular segments in the data? Big dogs, for example. Can we see dogs over a certain age or weight or are we tracking things like behavior or, you know, is that just too subjective? Well, that is what we call our next frontier in, in, our, in our data world. The basic data matrix and shelter animals count status right now is summary level data which means you're counting up all your cats, you're counting up all your dogs for the month, and you're reporting on those intakes and outcomes, which is very different than saying a cat came in as an owner surrender. What was that cat's outcome? And getting into animal-specific data like weight and breed, I know that's controversial, but uh, length of stay, that's all animal-specific or what we call animal-level data. And that's really the next, like what's next in shelter data? That's what's next in shelter data. Now the shelter management software companies have the benefit of that and probably to a large degree can speak to length of stay or weight or, or even um, what breed is captured. But in an accumulation perspective for either best friends or for shelter animals count or million cat challenge or anyone else aggregating data, that animal level data is really that next like deeper understanding layer that we haven't quite gotten to yet. The shift in shelter population is so important to point out, I think. Years and years ago, I saw a presentation, Dr. Ellen Jefferson, American Pets Alive, Austin Pets Alive. She had this pyramid to talk about the intake into a shelter, very average kind of generic sort of look at that. And so this pyramid, if you look at the bottom, you know, the biggest chunk, 50% of the animals that come in, they're the easiest to save, right? Highly adoptable animals, like puppies. And then you kind of go up from there, the next 15, 20%, they need help, minor, manageable medical or behavioral needs. And then the next group, saveable, but need more help, uh, you know, up to 90%. And then the final 10%, which, you know, we know that in many communities, they're going to 96, 98%. 
as they can reallocate resources uh, and, and help develop programs to help those tougher cases. But my point is that the shelter population, the types of animals that are coming into shelters, as a community improves, we see less and less of that 50%, right? It's going to start to get harder. Yeah. Not that it's ever been easy, but the last mile is definitely the hardest, I think. You're absolutely right. And when you think about that in the context of this shifting shelter population, cats in a shelter environment, not like it, it's an ideal environment for dogs, but cats in a shelter environment are a very different thing than our dogs in a shelter environment. You know, cats historically, and including in our 2020 data, have less ways to make it out alive. I guess I'll put it that way. They're more dependent on adoptions. Um, when you look at, you know, 39% of stray dogs being returned to owner versus four and a half percent of cats, like return to owner difference is huge. And even transfers and transports is, is greater for dogs. So really understanding like how can we hold or elevate cat adoptions, which are actually quite strong, more cats were adopted last year than dogs. How can we hold or even elevate that and really look at elevating some of the other um, programmatic means to save cats like return to field? Now, it's not just shelter population that's shifting to, to more difficult to save pets. We're also talking about having to get much more involved in communities that we collective, we, the movement, have not worked in before. Communities that are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, both rural and urban, you know, supporting pet owners in communities that are predominantly people of color. I know your team has been looking at how some of these things overlap. You know, we need to know this information, right, to be informed about what's happening in a community. I mean, who's your customer in this case, right? Who are we serving? What are their needs? And we're not just talking about places that are pet resource deserts, right? They're deserts for like all services, services for people. Yeah. So, um, and, and then I want to return to the rural urban thing, um, but let's talk about social vulnerability for, for a minute. We did not come up with this. The CDC did. It's called the Social Vulnerability Index, and it comprises um, actually 15 different variables that kind of fall in, in four key categories. Um, so socioeconomic status, which includes things like income level, poverty level, education level, employment status, household composition and disabilities, race, ethnicity, and language, and housing and transportation. And all of these variables go into a composite indices that span low to high vulnerability as the CDC has um, looked at this and established this for things like disaster preparedness and disaster recovery. And um, we thought it was really interesting because, you know, a year ago, we started looking at a lot of different dimensions and we were looking at them independently, like, okay, we can look at race and ethnicity. That's interesting. Now let's look at income. Ooh, that's interesting. And this is a way to really take all those vulnerability factors in a tried and true, tested, established methodology for kind of a composite way of looking at things. And so we've used the social, social vulner vulnerability index. Um, podcast listeners, if you haven't checked it out, there's a whole study on this that's available on the Network Partners site. John can probably throw that link up for you. In essence, there's only less than 29% of the nation's population that lives in high vulnerability counties. And yet when you overlay that with our sheltered data, um, what you see is that half of the nation's life-saving gap that we're trying to solve for, half lives in these high 
or exists in these high vulnerability counties. Additionally, when you look at it on a shelter level, um, we also see a disproportionate number of the shelters with the largest life-saving gap also residing in these high vulnerability counties. So there is a definite correlation there. One that I think a lot of folks kind of like knew either anecdotally or intuitively, but we've now done the data overlay to see it. And it's it's um, quite compelling to look at. So definitely like prompts thoughts about what do those tactics look like and what does engagement look like? And, you know, how, how does that need to be dual language? And I mean, there's just all kinds of programmatic and community engagement implications um, in looking at that data. So if you haven't checked it out, please do. The one thing I wanted to return to on rural urban was I was talking earlier about looking at the year of COVID and tracking it by month. And when we saw intakes around around probably the June timeframe, when we saw intakes starting to go back up and deaths did not follow to the same degree, which I say is a positive, we cut that by rural and urban and saw some pretty dramatic differences there, meaning that shelters in highly urban areas were able to retain that differential and keep their deaths down while intake was going back up. And rural shelters really struggled and that differential was significantly less. So um, I know you have a whole podcast on the needs in rural communities, but um, it's a real thing that um, we need to be thinking about and working on. And some of those needs are unique needs for rural communities. Yeah, we'll have links on the podcast website again. All of these things and more, bestfriends.org slash podcast episode 69. I listened to a podcast recently, Vicki, I think it was the Wall Street Journal there was, there was a story about the struggle in rural America related to human health care. There was a, a specific town, I think it was Wyoming, but this was a community where this healthcare system looked at this rural hospital and decided that it was better, you know, for the bottom line to cut the services, cut services to save money. And it left this community with a huge hole to try to fill. You know, you want an x-ray, get in the car, drive an hour, you know, and that's just not good enough. In America, in 2021, I was just looking this up the other day, we have tens of millions of Americans, they're not getting safe, clean drinking water. Yeah. They don't have adequate plumbing. <laughs> I mean, you think about these things and you wonder, how successful can we be unless we tackle this and understand our place what we can do as part of that. I mean, can you imagine going up to someone and saying, um, hey, I'd like to neuter your dog for free. Oh, uh, oh yeah, you want to fix my dog? Great. Can you help me with my wastewater? <laughs> I mean, how do we help communities that need help far beyond what we're offering? Do you know what I mean? Oh, I do. And I mean, <clears throat> I was going to say earlier, couple that with the um, that specifically shelter vet shortage challenges. And then you think about a rural community and it's just like, you know, that's an exacerbated issue. So I think, you know, oftentimes, and I know that these programs exist in different pockets of the country, but how can we think creatively that isn't like high ticket, like large expense item, like putting up a brick and mortar building? Um, what are some creative things we can do to bring greater service to those areas and not just think of service as a building? I think another opportunity to the degree that social services exist within um, those communities. I, I know that over the last year, we've been um, doing a lot in looking at the social, you know, the human services and animal services connection, and they are absolutely connected. Um, so I think that could be another opportunity as well. We're just going to really have to, 
identify, understand, and prioritize that rural needs and deficiencies and access are a unique challenge. And, you know, programmatically, tactically, um, what are what are some of those creative opportunities to bridge that gap? It is so important for us to understand. You know, I'm in Michigan, right? I was watching what was happening uh, during COVID, Detroit, Wayne County. That was an area that was hit so hard by COVID. And a lot of it, I think, came down to things like a systemic broken uh, or really just a lack of access to basic preventative medical care. So you've got higher rates of things like diabetes, heart disease, and then something like COVID hits. To be effective, I think we have to realize there's more happening than, than our world, and we can't separate the human issues from the pet issues. We talked about a lot, and I know we barely scratched the surface. Are there things that you wanted to mention specifically that we didn't talk about? I think we actually hit on absolutely everything that I had in mind, with the exception of what I'm calling our big headline. It's just that, you know, since we planted the stake in the ground in 2016 and really tried to rally our partners in the industry to really get aggressive about increasing life-saving and putting um, 2025 out there. Since that time, the movement at large has saved over 3.4 million more animals and had a reduction in shelter killing of 76%. So it's mind-blowing to look at 625 to 347. It's way more mind-blowing to look back five years ago and the immense progress that we've been able to make together for sheltered animals. I Listen, I don't think we do this nearly enough, which is stop, recognize, take a moment to celebrate the progress that we have made. We have a lot of work ahead, but you know, we really ought to stop and high five each other. Absolutely. Because all of the blood, sweat, tears that everyone listening to this is putting in each and every day, it's working. Absolutely. And I do think those moments are really important, especially after a trying year like we've just all been through. Pausing and reflecting and going, wow, look at everything we're getting done. Like it's hard work, but it's it's not in vain. We're seeing the results and they're quite dramatic when you look back over that five-year time horizon. Thank you for listening. The team behind the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, and Whitney Blyton. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.